Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical contexts, here on London's best and brightest radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today we're concluding our series on the cultural impact of the First World War by looking at the effect that the conflict had in France. Joining me to discuss this are Eric Robertson, Professor of Modern French Literary and Visual Culture at the Royal Holloway University in London, who has authored or co-authored several books on modernist artists and writers, including Jean Arp and Robert Desnos, with a work on the writer and poet Blaise Cendrard, forthcoming from Reaction Books. Peter Reid is Professor Emeritus in Modern French Literature and Visual Arts at the University of Kent and has published extensively on 20th century literature and art, including the works of Guillaume Apollinaire, Jean Cocteau and Pablo Picasso. Eric and Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. So we've already done shows on the impact of the war in the UK and Germany, and both the political context and cultural outcomes in those countries might well be more familiar to our listeners than that of France which, along with Belgium, was where most of the fighting on the Western Front actually took place. The French Third Republic was born out of the country's defeat in the Franco-Prussian War, which resulted in the collapse of Napoleon III's Second Empire, the two-month Commune of Paris that was crushed by the New Republic's army in May 1871, and the establishment of the German Empire, which took the French border regions of Alsace and Lorraine as part of the post-war settlement. The Third Republic government was intended to be provisional but became permanent, and it spent the next three decades consolidating its rule at home, eventually quashing demands for a restoration of the monarchy, defeating General Boulanger's right-wing coup attempt in 1889, and establishing further colonies in Africa, Asia and elsewhere. The fin de siècle in France was complicated culturally and politically. During the second half of the 19th century, France gave rise to some extraordinary literature, socially engaged novels by Gustave Flaubert and Émile Zola, the symbolist poetry of Charles Baudelaire, Stéphane Mallarmé and Arthur Rimbaud, and the decadent novels of Joris Karl Hiesmann. It also witnessed the birth of cinema, with the Lumière brothers inventing the documentary and George Méliès pioneering fictional film. Méliès actually made the first ever political docudrama in 1899, with a series of shorts about the Dreyfus affair, in which a Jewish soldier, Alfred Dreyfus, was sent to a penal colony for communicating French military secrets to the German embassy in Paris. It emerged that Dreyfus was the victim of an anti-Semitic conspiracy, and the affair divided French intellectuals into Dreyfusards, including Zola, whose famous text Jacques was about the scandal, and the physician and journalist George Clemenceau. And then there were anti-Dreyfusards, who included the symbolist writer Maurice Barrez, who represented a persistent conservative strand within the Third Republic's culture. Um. Anarchism became a significant political threat with the assassination of President Sadi Carnot in 1894. But in the early 20th century, the liberal democratic order seemed to stabilise with the radical socialists as an important parliamentary presence. The Entente Cordiale, signed in 1904, guaranteed peaceful relations with the United Kingdom. And in 1905, a law was passed to separate church and state. A sense of the failure of the achievements of the Enlightenment persisted, however, notably in George Sorel's work The Illusion of Progress, published in 1908, which cast war or proletarian revolution as a renewing force. The French socialist movement, as part of the Second International, maintained a pacifist position as international tensions rose, until its leader, Jean Gérès, 
was assassinated a few days before the German invasion of Belgium. After this, there was popular support for the First World War. The French army successfully defended Paris in the Battle of the Marne in September 1914, but the first months were exceptionally bloody, with 400,000 French killed before the end of 1914. The French army then got bogged down in trench warfare, especially around the Belgian and German borders. Many intellectuals made patriotic propaganda as the war dragged on. The nine-month Battle of Verdun, which the Germans initiated not for territorial or strategic gain, but to create a self-sustaining killing ground to bleed the French army, was the longest-lasting battle of the war, and while it resulted in victory, it left 163,000 French troops killed and 216,000 wounded, and I think became to the French imaginary about the war what the Somme or Passchendaele became to the British. The French eventually finished the war on the winning side, and under the centre-right President Clemenceau, imposed harsh terms in Germany under the Treaty of Versailles. Domestically, the country's politics split into broad centre-left and centre-right blocs, which forestalled the kind of radical left or right movements that emerged in Germany, Italy, Spain and Russia, with the reparations from Germany helping the Third Republic to stabilise its economy. The post-war period in France also produced some of the most vibrant arts, literature and film of the 20th century, which will be the subject of our conversation today. I want to start the conversation by talking about um, the first major work of war literature to come out of um, come out of the French experience of the First World War, which was a novel called uh, Le Feu, or Under Fire, by um, Henri Barbus. Um, Barbus had volunteered for the war. He initially saw it as a moral crusade against Germany, and he felt that the war would advance social progress, saying that it was directed against our old, infamous, time-honoured enemies, militarism and imperialism, the sabre, the boot, and the crown. So there's a kind of republican nationalism running through his thought. Um, Half of Barbus's unit was killed in four days in January 1915. Um, Barbus witnessed the removal of the corpses as a kind of additional horror. Um, he was awarded the Croix de Guerre for helping wounded soldiers back from no man's land. Uh, but he was invalided away from the front lines in late 1915. Uh, he became a secretary at an office of recruitment and wrote Le Few there. Um, so, Eric, I wonder if you'd like to tell us more about the novel itself. Um, Yes, well, um, I suppose one thing to uh, take stock of is the fact that Barbus was already quite established as a novelist before the war. So he had a reputation throughout France as a writer of some distinction. And when he uh, engaged, as uh, as you say, he, he volunteered to fight for the, the French army. Um, one suspects that you know he might have had some novel writing aims uh, but what is extraordinary about that experience is the extent to which um, he was uh, well his uh, preconceptions were were uh, blown away um, and that comes across very strongly not only in the in the book but also in his war diary which uh, which he wrote um, in the those moments of relative peace um, in between bouts of, of um, hostilities. Um, and to read those two things side by side, the, the diaries and the novel, you can see that actually the novel is essentially just uh, a longer 
transcription of some of the scenes and the sights and the thoughts that he had, um, uh, uh, you know, during that that experience. Um, the novel was uh, it was published in 1916. It won the Prix Goncourt, France's major literary award, and uh, it's brutal. It's a brutal, frank description of of the experience of war um, at a time when that initial phase, that war of movement, had had shifted into one of entrenchment. And so, you know, the trenches are a, a, a recurrent feature of the novel, often uh, semi-submerged in in water and mud. And there are some really graphic and horrific descriptions of that that hell on earth and uh, you know his fellow soldiers uh, being dragged painfully over a period of hours out of these huge craters uh, you know left by exploding shells and which had filled up with with mud um, it's, it, it is brutal and it's narrated in the present tense I think that's important because it brings us as readers so much closer to the action, you know, it's as if it's unfolding in front of us, and um, the way in which he narrates is is it's it's it lacks any kind of literary uh, artifice. You know, it's very blunt and brutal, and the language is very colloquial. You really uh, are placed, you know, at the scene, and you you hear the authentic language of the of the the poilu, the troops. And just the way that the book ends is significant. I think in relation to what you were saying about, you know, his noble um, aspirations for joining this war, uh, because by by the end we realise this is not, um, it's not an anti-German book at all. It's an anti-war book. And uh, a character just in the closing page of the book, he's about to die. He looks at the ground and sees this, pool of his own blood and he reflects on all that blood that he has given in order to quote unquote cure the world I think the irony of that is just you know it's very powerful um, and so it is a novel that really I think speaks um, very directly about the insanity and the the uh, just unimaginable horror of that experience yeah, uh, I mean, it was a hugely successful novel. It had sold 200,000 copies, I think, uh, within the first kind of year of its publication, I think possibly even sooner. Um, Peter, I think you wanted to talk about Georges Duhamel. Um, um, I'd, I'd quite like to say just a few words about Le Feu, about Barbus's novel. It's, I think it's interesting aesthetically. Uh, for me, it's a naturalist novel, deeply indebted to Emile Zola, who you mentioned earlier, Juliet. And Zola's greatest novel is probably Germinal, a novel about 
mine workers and the hardship that they put up with, particularly during a strike. And um, Zola, when he was writing a novel uh, in the 1880s, say, uh, would always go to the site, the place that he was writing about and would take notes. And that's exactly what Barbus did. He went to the front, took notes and then made a novel from his notes. And so for me, it reaches back to a 19th century documentary tradition. But like Zola, he's not particularly interested in individuals. He's interested in the group. It's the group that counts more than the individuals. And I think like Zola, he has a point to make. He claims to be documenting reality, but he's actually uh, making a point. It's a pacifist novel, as uh, Eric has suggested. Uh, but at the same time, because it has that journal format, because it was published first as a serial, it has a fragmentary structure. And that fragmentary structure relates it to 20th century modernism. Because Cubism, Futurism, the poetry of Apollinaire, the poetry of Blessandrach were often uh, fragmentary, multifaceted. And so I think from that point of view, it's uh, an interesting work as well, bridging really uh, the space between naturalism and modernism, taking us into modernism. Just to add to that, um, another way in which this is a novel that that you know crosses boundaries um, also during the war, it was um, it was translated by a, a pacifist, uh, a writer called René Chiquelet, who was from Alsace, and who therefore found that war just impossible to to tolerate for obvious reasons. And he had it. He had um, a passage of about twenty pages or so translated. I think it may have been Hugo Ball actually, the Dadaist who, who did that translation. And it was published in a German pacifist journal called Die Weissen Blätter, the White Pages, and received, you know, in Germany during the war and appreciated by a German readership. So it's quite an extraordinary achievement, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um like I said, it's a really kind of emblematic work of the war. Um, but you, you mentioned Duhamel, and Duhamel is, uh, was a doctor at the front, and so dealing with the most atrocious uh, uh, wounds and uh, amputations and so on. Um, and uh, But he was also a writer, and so he too was, like Barbus, really setting out to record experience and to communicate that to the people back home. And so there was a huge appetite in France during the war uh, by uh, in, in the women and other people, the older people left behind to find out what was happening. And so uh, the success of Duhamel and uh, Barbus, uh, their commercial success, in fact, they were writing bestsellers, was because they were um, channeling information back to the the home front, if you like. But it's interesting that when we talk about First World War literature, who are we talking about here? We're talking about prose writers. Whereas in Britain, if you talk about the First World War, it's always the war poets. In France, on the whole, uh, it's Roland d'Orchelais. I think he's going into the Pantheon soon, isn't he? Um, mm. It's Duhamel, it's uh, Barbus and others uh, who have uh, really marked the century. Well, yeah, I mean, that um, that gives me an opportunity to do a, a nice segue to two um, kind of modernist poets who we want to talk about, which is uh, Guillaume Apollinaire and uh, Blaise Cendra. Um 
I mean, I could talk about Apollinaire a lot. He's possibly my favourite writer. But um, Peter, I wondered if you would like to um, briefly introduce Apollinaire as a, as a figure. Um, he's a very important modernist figure. Uh, introduce him as a figure and um, talk about why he signed up for the, for the war and what came out of that. Okay. Um, well, Apollinaire is uh, France's best-known war poet, really. And he's possibly, with Sondrard, um, I guess they're the two main poets of the First World War for the French. Um, and neither of them were French originally. Um, Apollinaire was uh, born in Rome in 1880, and uh, his real name was uh, Wilhelm Apollinaris de Kostrowitzki. So his mother was Polish. He didn't know his father. He was uh, illegitimate. Poland didn't exist at that time. It was part of Russia. And so he was also without a nationality, really. Um, he was, uh, his first language was Russian. His mother spoke Russian to him, and then he learned Italian in his childhood. But his mother put him in a Catholic boarding school in Monaco, and so French became his mother tongue, and he adopted French and um, became a well-known poet before the First World War. I think uh, when Barbu signed up, he was 41 years old. When Apollinaire signed up, he was 34 years old. And so these men were much older than the 18, 19, 20-year-olds around them. But um, Apollinaire signed up. Uh, he was an established poet, an established art critic. He was actually best known in France probably as an art critic because he had a daily column in a major national newspaper. And uh, he was sticking up for the beginnings of abstraction in art, Robert Delaunay, artists like that. And also um, he was a great friend of Picasso and he knew Matisse and all of those people. So he was the spokesman, if you like, for the artistic avant-garde. Uh, he joined up, uh, well, he was in Paris when war broke uh, at the beginning of the war and um, he tried to sign up but he was unable to sign up because the recruiting offices were overflowing with volunteers. And a lot of them, like him, were not of French nationality. But the fact is the German army was just 50 kilometres from Paris in Saint-Lys. And uh, so people were signing up to save Paris. Uh, Paris was a cultural hub of the world at that time in the view of people like Apollinaire. Uh, so he went to the south of France and managed to sign up in, in the south of France. And um, when he signed up, he also applied for French nationality. Uh, there was a part of idealism in this for non-French nationals signing up. But there was also the opportunity, uh, a law that was passed in August 1914, that if a foreign national signed up, then they could apply for French nationality. And so he joined the artillery, he served in the artillery, then he switched to the infantry, served in the trenches in winter, and then was he was gassed, so his lungs were damaged by poison gas, and uh, then he was wounded in the head in the spring of 1916, invalided out, and spent the rest of the war still in uniform, um, still part of the army, but uh, serving, doing office work basically in Paris and back with the artistic community in Paris. 
Yeah, um, I mean, his war poetry is certainly, you know, nothing like uh, Wilfred Owen's. Um, yeah, he'd made his name with a book called Al Cool, uh, Alcohols, uh, in 1913. Um, his volume of war poetry, Caligram, was published um, in 1918, which was also the year he died. He was wounded in the head and trepanned and um, substantially uh, wounded, and um, the Spanish flu epidemic. Um, finished him off. Um, Peter, I wonder if you'd like to quickly read one of Apollinaire's war poems for us. Okay, well, thank um, you. In English um, translation. Yeah, I'll read a poem called um, Ocean of Earth, which is one of his infantry poems. Apollinaire, like the English war poets, was writing at the front. So every one of his poems was really a bulletin coming directly from the front and trying to cover every aspect of the war. And I'm reading a translation by an American poet called Ron Paget, who's published a bilingual anthology of Apollinaire poems. And this poem is called Ocean of Our Earth. So it's an infantry poem and it's about a gas attack. And uh, the men in gas masks are compared to octopuses floundering in the mud. So um, it's Ocean of Earth, dedicated to Giorgio de Chirico, the painter. I have built a house in the middle of the ocean. Its windows are the rivers flowing from my eyes. Octopi are crawling all over where the walls are. Here their triple hearts beat and their beaks peck against the window panes. House of dampness, house of burning, season's fastness, season singing. The airplanes are laying eggs. Watch out for the dropping of the anchor. Watch out for the shooting black ichor. It would be good if you were to come from the sky. The sky's honeysuckle is climbing. The earthly octopi are throbbing. And so very many of us have become our own grave diggers. Pale octopi of the chalky waves, O oh, octopi with pale beaks, Around the house is this ocean that you know well and is never still. I mean, there are so many of Apollinaire's war poems that I would uh, would love to read to you, but um, unfortunately we don't have time. Um, I want to move the conversation on now to a figure that is often associated with Apollinaire, um, their kind of poetic styles had some overlap and um, they were personally acquainted with each other. And uh, that's Blaise Sendra. Um, so, Eric, I wonder if you would like to introduce uh, Sendra to our listeners and particularly his his war experiences and then the, the work he did after the war. Sure. Well, um, he was, as Peter said, uh, Sendra, uh, like Apollinaire, was not actually French. He was born in Switzerland in uh, a place called La Chaux de Fond in 1887. So he was seven years younger than Apollinaire. He, um, his father was a, a kind of a, uh, something of an inventor, but not a very successful one. But he took the, the, the family uh, to various places, uh, including Naples. Uh, so Sandra, as a youngster, had experience of traveling. He also, in his teens, went to work for a jeweler and was sent on a... Uh, uh, a trip to St. Petersburg and, you know, one of his most famous works of the, the pre-war uh, years is his 1913 
poem called La Prose du Transsibérien et de la Petite Jeanne de France, the prose of the Trans-Siberian and of little Jeanne of France, which was a kind of extraordinary book object illustrated by Sonia Delaunay, whom he met through Apollinaire, actually. He met the Delaunay couple uh, thanks to the, uh, the uh, good offices of, of Apollinaire. Um, but in terms of Sandrard and the war, um, he's one of those interesting figures. You know, he, um, he had no need to fight in that he was Swiss, but he felt such a strong allegiance to this nation that he had effectively, you know, adopted as his own that uh, he, um, he published just in early August 1914, so just really after the war was declared, he published a text co-authored with uh, Ricciotto Canudo under the title uh, Appel à tous les étrangers, Call to All Foreigners. And it reads, and I'll just quote a little of a sentence or so, foreigners loyal to France, who during their stay in France have learnt to love and cherish it like a second homeland, feel the imperious need to offer their arms for it. So this call to arms... Um, uh, would prove uh, all too uh, sinister and and ironic and macabre because uh, you know on the fields of Champagne in September 1915, Sandrard would sustain very heavy uh, uh, wounds to his right arm, which uh, meant that he had to have it amputated above the elbow, and um, and that terrible experience marked him in all sorts of ways and um, shaped his subsequent work as a as a writer I mean it's quite poignant if you um, if you take a look at his his manuscripts written in the aftermath of that you know he taught himself to write with his left hand and uh, it is quite a, a poignant thing to uh, to witness um, and you know when he you know he he was invalided out he he um he recovered and before the war was over he had already both resumed writing but he had also uh, got uh, to work with with the filmmaker Abel Gans and uh, played a part in his film Jacques but just in terms of Sandra's writing one of the most powerful. Um, things that he wrote during the war was a short uh, text, a short story called J'ai Tué, I Have Killed. And it was published uh, in 1918. Well, he, he wrote it in, in 1918, um, in the early part of that year. And it was uh, when it appeared in print, it was published with illustrations by his friend Fernand Léger, the artist associated with the Cubist uh, movement and Léger himself had um, served in the French army and was had been gassed at Verdun and survived that. But this story uh, I have killed. It um, it recounts with extraordinary vividness, almost cinematically, uh, the experience of being a soldier and the both the tedium of of waiting in the dark, you know, waiting for orders, but then also that terrifying rush of 
battle. And um, towards the end of it, um, the first-person narrator reflects on all the extraordinary effort that has gone into this war. And I, I might just quote a few lines, if I may. Um, he writes, The hands of men and women have made all that I carry with me. All races, all climates, all beliefs have collaborated. Water, air, fire, electricity, radiography, acoustics, ballistics, mathematics, metallurgy, fashion, arts, superstitions, the light bulb, travel, the table, the family, and the history of the universe are the uniform I'm wearing. And so he sees himself as the, 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 the kind of... Um, he, uh, the individual fighting on the battlefield, is the, the kind of sum total of all of that effort. And, um, and he, he goes on... Here I am, nerves tense, muscles bandaged, ready to leap into reality. I've braved the torpedo, the cannon, mines, fire, gas, machine guns, the whole anonymous, demoniac, systematic, blind machinery. I will brave man, my fellow, an ape. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, between us now, with fists, with knives, merciless. So it's a really powerful evocation of that, that, you know, both the machinery of war, but also the fact that ultimately it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hand-to-hand at times. Yeah, um, you're listening to Suite 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm talking to Eric Robertson and Peter Reid about the cultural impact of the First World War in France. Um, we're focusing now on the um, poet and screenwriter, uh, Blaise Sendra. Um, I want to move on to talk for maybe three or four minutes um, about a film that Sendra made with uh, the filmmaker Abel Gantz. We've already alluded to it. Um, you know, something that's interesting about the chronology of film and the First World War is that the first feature films uh, for what we now understand as full-length feature films are made around 1914-15, Kiberia in Italy and, of course, uh, Birth of a Nation in the US. Um, And so full-length propaganda films were made during the First World War. Uh, Gantz and Sendra uh, teamed up to make a kind of a pacifist propaganda film called J'accuse, of course, its title referring to Zola. Um, And this film uh, kind of springs partly out of an experience that Sendra has uh, after a Polonaise funeral, which takes place as the French are celebrating celebrating the war victory, and they try and find a Polonaire in the uh, Père Lachaise, and there's sort of nothing but confusion and uh, people in the cemetery who've just completely lost track of who they've buried and who they haven't. Um, I don't think we should focus on that for too long, but um, I wonder if we could talk a bit about uh, Jacques and especially the um, the famous scene towards the end of the film. Um, yeah. Well, um, uh, yes, uh, this is a very significant film in a, a whole number of ways, and uh, I think it, it remains one of the most powerful cinematic statements about that war. Uh, on the one hand, it's a love story um, and focuses on a, a, a poet called Jean Diaz who is um, in love 
with a woman who's who's married, Edith. She's already married to somebody called François. And so there is this love triangle, but it's most importantly a film about war because both of the main male characters uh, fight on the French army and somewhat um, conveniently end up fighting side by side. But in terms of the circumstances of the the making of that film, it is remarkable. Firstly, the fact that it was filmed during the hostilities and um, certain scenes uh, were filmed actually using real battalions of soldiers. And um, as the historian Jay Winter has observed, some of those individuals, you know, didn't make it till the to the end of the war um, but the, you alluded to a scene towards the end of the film well that's one in which the war dead rise from the battlefield uh, and in a ghostly fashion they march back to the village where they uh, they really serve a warning to the villagers those who've not been fighting to admonish them for really forgetting or for, for not fully appreciating the effort that the soldiers had made. And in that scene, we quite clearly see Blaise Sandrard standing up, complete with his, uh, or dare I say, without his uh, right arm. You know, he's, there he is in his, uh, with his genuine war wound, and he's surrounded by other uh, minor figures who are, who are, also mutilé de guerre. And so this is a film that is a work of fiction, but in a very powerful way. You know, it bears the scars of that conflict, and we see that, and it, it is uh, it's a hugely affecting uh, experience, even today. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I watched it recently and was really kind of struck by the power of that final scene in particular, you know, the kind of melodrama of the main story, but then this extraordinarily um, harrowing and vivid and graphic um, final scene. I mean, the the use of cinematography there is, is pretty extraordinary. It's a, um, it's a zombie film, yeah, in fact. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Debout de les Morts was a battle cry in the First World War as the men went over the top in the French army, then they would shout for reinforcements, the dead arise with us. And so there was this sense of the fallen comrades being with those who were going forward uh, across no man's land. And so that was a cinematographic realisation, if you like, of uh, what had been a battle cry uh, and turned on its head to become a denunciation, I guess, of uh, the horror of war. Absolutely. Uh, I just want to talk uh, for a couple of minutes now about a work from 1917 called uh, Parade, which was um, in some senses the last hurrah of a kind of a pre-war Paris in which, um, you know, there was this incredible cross-fertility um, within the arts. We've already talked about with regards to um, Apollinaire. Um, Jean Cocteau was involved with uh, with Parade um, and he said, you know, talking about the relationship between left and right politics and kind of avant-garde or traditionalist approaches to to form, he says, 
There were no politics at the time, no political left or right. There was only a left and right in art, and what we were full of was the patriotism of art. Um, Cocteau had actually like led a crusade against Germanic influences in art. He was actually convinced that Cubism was a German development until Picasso convinced him otherwise. Um, and so Cocteau became part of um, of this sort of um, kind of Gesamtkunstwerk, as it were. Um, so, Peter, I wonder if you'd like to maybe just tell us a bit more about Parade. Well, uh, Parade was a ballet, and um, as you say, it was uh, it had its premiere in May 1917 at Théâtre du Châtelet. Théâtre du Châtelet is a 3,000-seat theatre, so it was a big theatre, big event. And um, during the spring of 1917, there was this strange cultural renaissance in Paris as people who'd been at the front, like Jean Cocteau, like Apollinaire, uh, returned from the front, wounded or invalided out or on leave, or Cocteau just left the war, as he said, in 1916. Um, He'd been in an ambulance corps. And um, these people met the... uh, painters and writers who hadn't gone to the front for various reasons, people like Picasso, who was Spanish, or Max Jacob, who was too old to serve. And uh, together they uh, started uh, relaunching, really, the cultural life of uh, Montparnasse, and it was a great cultural effervescence. I think their optimism was born of the fact also that they they had learnt that America was going to join the war. And so in the spring of 1917, there was this feeling that the war was going to end soon. And it was in that, and this was a mistaken, <laughs> a misapprehension, in fact. Um, but uh, within that context, uh, Diaghilev uh, brought his Russian ballet company to Paris and uh, had a season in the spring of 1917 at Théâtre du Châtelet. And uh, Cocteau had persuaded Diaghilev to um, sponsor a a ballet which he had uh, imagined and created called Parade. And uh, it was really the story of a Parade's uh, sideshow. Um, And it was the story of a sideshow which tries to persuade passers-by to come in and pay and see the real show behind the sideshow. But the... um, passers-by prove indifferent. And so it's an allegory of the difficulty of uh, avant-garde artists and modern artists and writers to reach a broad public. Um, Cocteau wrote the the scenario. He enrolled Picasso to uh, do the decor and costumes. The music was by Eric Satie and the choreography was by Leonid Massin, a 20-year-old Russian dancer. And um, it was really... uh, Picasso produced a very beautiful and traditional style drop curtain but he produced costumes for some of the characters which were vehemently cubist and his decor was cubist. And so this was really the first time that the broader Parisian public had contact with authentic Picasso and Braque cubism. And uh, because of that and other aspects of the ballet, it caused something of a riot in the theatre. According to Cocteau, anyway, fighting broke out in the stalls. Yeah, um, 
I know that around this time, you know, not long before he dies, Apollinaire sort of coins the term serialist. Yeah, one of Picasso, of Apollinaire's claims to fame was the fact that he invented the word surrealism. And he applied the word surrealism to the ballet Parade, um, which was the story of a, sh- a sideshow, really, which doesn't uh, manage to attract an audience. And um, Cocteau had said that Parade was a ballet réaliste. And that was because it was a ballet that used a contemporary urban setting with uh, real acrobats and uh, entertainers and their managers trying to drum up uh, uh, support for the show. Um, Whereas previously, the Russian ballet had tended to use Russian folk tales, mythology, uh, oriental, uh, uh, splendidly oriental stories, whereas this was uh, a very modern show. Um, But Apollinaire felt that it was more than just realist for him. Realism suggested something rather naturalistic and down to earth. And he felt there was something magical about this coming together of a great composer, a great artist, a contemporary poet and a contemporary choreographer. And so he said it was a surrealist ballet. And so that's where the word surrealism began. So I'd like to talk about surrealism now and how it comes out of the Dadaist movement um, and out of the war. Um, I don't want to spend long on Dada, really, because we covered it in last week's show on um, the legacy of the war in Germany. Um, But maybe we could just sort of, um, we can spend 10 minutes on on this, talking about um, the move from Zurich to Paris Dada. Um, Yeah. Yes, well... um as you've said, uh, you know, Dada was uh, a phenomenon that was that took root in different different countries, in different cities. Uh, the first one really would be Zurich during the First World War, and it is significant that it began in Switzerland because of its neutrality during the the war, and the overriding thing about it was that it was an international movement. So you had writers and artists and thinkers, performers who were from variously Germany, Romania, France, Switzerland, um, coming together, um, performing uh, in in a very experimental sort of way, but also, I think, in some respects, you know, acknowledging an artistic and literary heritage that had been that was at risk of being annihilated by the war. And, you know, one thinks of Dada as a very iconoclastic, destructive thing, but actually some of the soirées that they ha- held at the Cabaret Voltaire in Zurich, you know, they were, they were reading poetry, they were, they were reciting uh, texts by um, mystic, mystical writers, uh, Jakob Böhme and others. And, um, you know, so there was this creative side to Dada um, and then you mentioned the fact that, that Dada uh, after the war it takes root in Paris and that is essentially down to the fact that uh, one of the, the most active uh, figures in the group, Tristan Sarah, Romanian but working largely in the French language he moved to Paris in 1919 and the the writer and soon to be uh, leader of the what was not yet 
the surrealist group, uh, André Breton, thought that Zara was an extraordinary figure and welcomed him, at least uh, initially. And so you have there around 1919, 1920, you've got the beginnings of, well, you've got essentially Paris Dada, which by 1924 will grow into the surrealist movement. Yeah, um, I mean, there's certainly, you know, there is uh, a split between the Dadaists and the Surrealists. As you say, Breton uh, initially welcomed Zara um, and they uh, they gradually fall out. Um, one of the first things the Paris Dada group do is organise a show trial of the right-wing writer, Maurice Perez, for what they called Crimes Against the Safety of the Mind in 1921. And the surrealist poet, Benjamin Perret, sang these kind of meaningless verse, verses playing the German unknown soldier that obviously drew on the kind of Dada um, kind of nonsense poetry, to sound poetry traditions. Um, Breton initiated a riot at the production of Zara's play The Gas Heart in 1923, and this leads to a kind of break. Um, I think the, you know, the relationship between the Surrealists and the First World War is what we should spend the next kind of couple of minutes focusing on. Uh, we've mentioned the historian Jay Winter already, who wrote um, in his book Sites of Memory, Sites of Mourning, that when set against the backdrop of the 1914-18 conflict, the preoccupation of Surrealist artists and other members of the avant-garde appear less esoteric, self-indulgent and introverted than the Surrealists themselves were prepared to admit. Their images of shattered forms and landscapes were all too mundane to millions of ex-soldiers. And regarding that, I just want to very quickly read one of my favourite pieces of war poetry uh, that came out anywhere of the conflict, which is a, a short poem uh, by Benjamin Perret called uh, Little Song of the Maimed. And in the translation by the surrealist poet David Gascoigne, it goes... Lend me your arm to replace my leg. The rats ate it for me at Verdun, at Verdun. I ate a lot of rats, but they didn't give me back my leg. And that's why I was given the crud and a wooden leg and a wooden leg. So you get something of the, you know, the sort of condensed sense of the physical horror of the war, but also the kind of mental derangement that it brings about. Um... And I wonder if we could maybe talk quickly about André Breton in the First World War and the Surrealists. Well, the, the founding group of Surrealists were poets. Nowadays, if you speak to people about Surrealism, they think of Salvador Dali, René Magritte. They tend to think of painters. But originally, it was a literary movement and it was created by poets who had served in the First World War. So uh, André Breton himself served as a stretcher bearer at the front during the freezing, horrific winter of 1916-1917 and uh, was uh, actually a medical student uh, training. Uh, he, had, he had a possible future ahead of him as a psychiatrist and he treated afterwards, when he came back from the front, he treated men with shell shock. Uh, Louis Aragon served in the frontline trenches, was decorated for bravery after being buried alive twice uh, by explosions. Uh, Philippe Soupeau also served at the front and was invalided out. Um, and so really, I guess, uh, Paul Eluard, the fourth uh, musketeer, if you like, uh, also served at the front. And his first uh, book of poems was called, I believe, uh, Le Devoir et l'Inquietude, Duty and anguish or worry 
so all of these men had served and they came out of the war angry young men. And they faced a society which was trying to turn the page, if you like, and to pick up as before in their view. And they found that absolutely uh, insupportable. They couldn't put up with that. And um, they felt that Western civilization, European culture, had proved itself bankrupt by the way it had led to the carnage of the First World War. And so they tried to create a movement which uh, they eventually decided should, through literary expression and through other forms of action, uh, create a synthesis of Marx and Rambo. Marx wanted to transform the world. Uh, Rambo, the French poet, wanted to change life. So this was very highly idealistic, but based on anger and the experience of the First World War. So... The Surrealists had a quite complicated relationship with actually existing kind of Marxist and communist movements, didn't they? Well, um, they became more politicised as time went on. And it was actually uh, an uprising uh, against uh, French rule in Morocco, where they supported the Moroccans uh, resisting French occupation. Uh, um, it was that time which really politicised them. And so following that, uh, Breton and his friends tried to operate a rapprochement uh, with the French Communist Party. And so they tried to achieve a conciliation between their cultural, artistic and poetic commitment and their political commitment. But they found themselves in a situation where actually they were some of them refused to make that transition. Antonin Arto refused. Jacques Prévert said, yeah, I'd quite like to join the Communist Party, but I'm afraid of finding myself in a cell, you know, a political cell. Um, those who did join, um, Breton, Aragon, Eluard, found themselves being forced to choose between surrealism and communism. The communists were saying, yeah, why do you want to join uh, the Communist Party if you're surrealist? What, what is surrealism? Surrealism is incomprehensible for ordinary working people. It's bourgeois, individualistic. So already there was a kind of proto-Stalinist uh, aesthetic in the Communist Party. And so Breton was forced to leave the Communist Party and basically Aragon and Eluard chose to commit to the Communist Party and so left surrealism. OK, we've got 10 minutes left here on uh, Suite 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, we're coming to the end of our programme on the um, cultural impact of the First World War in France. Um, we've just been talking about the Surrealists. I wonder if we could maybe very, very quickly, it will have to be very quickly, just talk for a couple of minutes about the adoption of more kind of conservative and traditionalist forms around about the same time that the Surrealists are working. Well, it's, <laughs> it's true that um, after the First World War in France, you had the creative energy of Dada, followed by the literary experimentation of surrealism, which, thanks to André Breton's intransigence, would be the longest-running avant-garde movement in the world, it would last from 
let's say, the Sirius Manifesto in 1924 right up until Breton's death in 1964, if I'm not mistaken, and maybe into 1968. Some people say that May 1968 in Paris was a realisation of uh, the Surrealist Revolution during a few weeks. Um, but on the other hand, there were many other... Uh, pressures and movements in uh, and currents of opinion and of expression in France. And um, one of them was, um, to use Cocteau's term, a return to order. And uh, it began really, I guess, in 1915 when Picasso, who was a cubist and continued being a cubist, also started drawing, people said, like Angre. So he did a drawing, a pencil drawing of Max Jacob in the style of Angra. And this caused uh, a stir in Paris. People who found out about it said, Picasso's abandoned the avant-garde. Picasso's abandoned cubism. He's drawing like Angra. But it was uh, the beginnings of a movement. Um, and um, after the First World War, there were many artists and writers. Uh, Paul Valéry published Le Jeune Parc in 1917, which was a series of rhyming Alexandrines. He hadn't published anything for 20 years, and he produced this classically perfect long poem. Um, and really, it was a reaction to the fragmentation, the splintering, the literal splintering of the landscape and of human beings during the First World War. And somehow the fragmentary style of Cubist art and avant-garde poetry no longer seemed appropriate to some artists, even artists who'd very much been committed to that avant-garde style. And so you found artists such as Severini or André Derain who returned to a classical figurative style of painting and a writer like Jean Cocteau from 1922 in Vocabulaire started writing in classical, classically styled, rhymed, regular poetry. Yeah, and Cocteau is interesting partly because he works in film. And I just want to conclude the programme by talking about some of the films that uh, dealt with the war and its legacy in 1920s and 1930s France. Um, we've also mentioned uh, Antonin Artaud, the surrealist writer, uh, and he crops up in some of these films. He um, he turns up in uh, Leon Poirier's film Verdun, Visions d'Histoire, in 1928, which is a documentary-like recreation of the battle. Um, it used veterans from the battle. It was one of the first docudramas Poirier had served at Verdun, and the battle scenes were so realistic that they were used to represent actual World War I footage in subsequent documentaries. Um, you know, indeed, the physical scars are still present around Verdun now. There's still the Zone Rouge and control areas that are not fit for human habitation due to pollution, damage to agriculture and unexploded mines. Um, this film was quite sort of expressionistic. The characters just had names like a French and German soldier, um, a mother, a general, etc. But Marshal Philippe Petain, um, who was very um, you know, commander on the Western Front plays himself in the film and it was premiered in the presence of the president Gaston Dumergue in 1928 so it was a very um, very important important film in that respect um, another film I want to uh, just touch on briefly is a film I watched last night called Wooden Crosses by Ramon Bernard which comes out in 1932 and um, 
This is adapted from a former corporal, Roland Dorgelez's novel, and it recreates a single regiment's experience at the battlefield. It echoes Jacques in the way it uses crosses to portray the numerous dead, but it keeps us at the front for the whole time, unlike Abelgonce's film, uh, with these long battle scenes. Um, but what's interesting here is the coming of sound, which is able to convey the hellish nature of the war in a way that Abelgonce's films and... Um, um, Leon Poirier's films just weren't. It's really unflinching in getting us attached to the characters, killing them and then leaving their bodies behind. You know, at one point, the soldiers use a dead body as a parapet in the absence of anything else. Um, we've got five minutes left, so quite ambitiously, I'd like to just talk very, very briefly about Abel Gonce's, um film Napoleon um, before we come back to a couple of minutes on Jean Renoir. So, um, Gonce's Napoleon... Um, is completed in 1927. Um, he'd actually made another film with Blaise Sendra called La Rue a few years earlier. Um, but Napoleon uh, is a six-hour epic in which he... Um, in which you see a real reassertion of French patriotism. Jay Winter describes it as presenting war without the shadows, without the nightmares, and without the haunting image of the fallen with which, to which he was to return, Abelgantz was to return, when the real possibility of armed conflict returned in the late 1930s. Um, Peter, I think you've you've seen you saw Abel Gantz talk about this. Um, I saw a film of Abel Gantz when um, Napoleon. The film was it is indeed a six-hour epic, but when it was first restored, I saw it. Then it was projected in French cinemas um, about thirty-five years ago, I think, and it was preceded by an interview with uh, Abel Gantz, who was still alive, at least at the time of the restoration, and he, I remember him, uh, a very vigorous old man, <laughs> saying, the subject of this film is l'audace, audacity, audacity, so daring, and uh, I... For me, the film glorifies Napoleon, <laughs> and um, but he didn't he didn't want to admit that uh, at that time. I think looking back on the film, he wanted to suggest that it was um, really glorifying what is uh, the French like to think of themselves as an audacious and daring, forward-looking, uh, creative people. And uh, he saw the film uh, from that that point of view. That's what he wanted to promote in the film. So. The last film I want to talk about, we've got a couple of minutes left, is the one, the, I think the last great French First World War film of this period. And it's the only one to be made at a point when another war looked inevitable. Um, the Great Depression hit France slightly later than elsewhere. Around 1931, there was no banking crisis. The reparations from Germany ended in 1932 after uh, Ramsay MacDonald pressured the French premier, Edouard Herriot, into a series of concessions to Germany. Um, but there was a riot in 1934 that led to the fall of the French government and the election of the Popular Front in 1936, uh, which, of course, is also when the Spanish Civil War begins. And that meant France had the possibility of being surrounded on three sides by by fascism. Uh, so Jean Renoir's film La Grande Illusion comes out of that and it's a kind of liberal humanist call for international solidarity made exactly at the point where another war with Germany looks looks almost inevitable. Uh, the title is from Norman Angel's book The Great Illusion which argues that war is futile because of shared economic interests across nations um, and in the film you see people in a prisoner of war camp um, who are German, Austrian, French, Jewish uh, dividing across these kind of class lines um, 
you still see a call of patriotism it's very powerful there's a scene with an impromptu rendition of la marseillaise when the camp receives news that the french have recaptured fort douamont during the battle of verdun um but there are no battle scenes and very little violence um the aristocratic character Bourdieu, uh, his attempts to escape are presented as a kind of sport um but the main frenchman the character in the uh, the main frenchman in the film is between the working class maréchal played by jean gabin and uh, jewish character rosenthal um they escape to switzerland at the end of the film uh, but they remain in a world kind of full of anxieties in fact the original ending of the film was uh, was even bleaker and it had them agreeing to meet up in a cafe um and then the film was going to show you two empty chairs uh, surrounded by the french celebrating victory in the first world war um that's all we've got time for today and there's so many works that we could have discussed in a lot more depth um but an hour of course is really not a lot of time to cover um such a sort of rich and complex um political situation and um artistic and intellectual culture so it just remains for me to sign off i've been juliet jakes i've been joined today by eric robertson and peter reed thank you both so much for being with me in the studio we'll be back next week thanks for listening take care goodbye